Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing upper GI bleed. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again and welcome to uh, Take Orally. My name is uh, Jamie. Uh, I'm one of the Teacher Fellows in Emergency Medicine. You can find me on Twitter at, at McDreamy. And I'm Charlie. I'm one of the Teaching Fellows in Medicine. Um, and I don't know how to use Twitter. Excellent. Both. You are on there. <laughs> I am on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, so, um, this uh, podcast comes from a request from one of our students who uh, requested a podcast on upper GI bleeding. Uh, so, you asked, we delivered. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie, for coming back to the booth uh, to help me with this. Um, potentially a, a serious problem, upper GI bleeding, something that could be quite dramatic and quite difficult to manage. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge spectrum uh, from the sort of what appears to be an upper GI bleed that then isn't or people that don't even need the endoscopy because it seems unlikely although they presented with a degree of sort of what appeared to be hematemesis all the way through to sort of um sort of peri-arrest patients who have a systolic of 40 (laughs) who are sort of hemorrhaging blood from both ends basically so potentially life-threatening not always um but something not to let catch you out basically Mm, yeah and i completely want to uh, agree with that. I mean, in, in A and E, everything from the care home resident to oh, it looked a bit brown. Their vomit, query coffee ground. The, the query coffee ground vomit. Yeah. All the way, like you said, should never be used. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. As a gastroenterologist once said to yeah. me, never use that phrase. Never ever. Okay, um, so I mean, the, the reason we have Charlie here, she's a fantastic med reg. Upper GI bleed, medical problem. Yep. Uh, lower GI bleed, we'll deal with separately. Surgical. Surgical. Yep. Absolutely. So we are focusing on upper GI bleed today. Fresh PR bleeding, not for me. Thank you. Not for uh, not for Charlie. Um, so, how is our? I suppose we've already alluded to this. There is a spectrum. How is our patient with upper GI bleed going to present? How are we going to recognise it? What are the key bits of history we want? Yeah. So I think history is one of the most important things here, um, and not just the sort of history of events, but past medical history. Um, which you may or may not know. So it's important to pick out the important factors and really ask the important questions as well. Um, So anyone with a history of liver disease or even just a sort of chronic alcohol history, just always be wary of cirrhosis, portal hypertension and therefore varices. Variceal bleeds potentially catastrophic. So make sure you're getting that history. You'll have to ask it potentially in a sensitive way, Um, but just be prepared for that as a possible cause of your GI bleed. Um, The other thing that's really important to be asking about is their drug history. Um, And it may be that you've got to do a bit of Sherlock Holmes investigative work to try and find out what this is. Nothing wrong with a bit of Sherlock Holmes. Absolutely. But anything over the counter, people can get ibuprofen over the counter. So ask about NSAIDs, ask about brand names as well, Nurofen, some people might not know it to be called ibuprofen. So it's making sure you're asking the sort of relevant questions in a way that people can understand. Um, SSRIs are also culpable in causing sort of a gastritis or sort of peptic ulcer GI bleed, um, so really important to know about that. Um, steroids are another sort of culprit, um, and certainly in the elderly patients you want to be using GI protection when using any of these um, mm. medicines. So it's also that absence of a, of a, a PPI. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and obviously, the other thing that's really important to be establishing is the presence of anticoagulation or coagulopathy. So, mm. um, again, think about your liver patients, synthetic um, derangement of your liver function, lack of clotting factors, or warfarin, apixaban, dibigotrin, rivaroxaban, the ones that people are less familiar with, mm. clopidogrel even. Mm. So, yeah, drug history really important. Now, you may not get that history though. Um, you may get your patient presenting in extremis, hypotension, tachycardic, look for your shock features. Um, look for the signs of anemia as well, you're a very pale patient. Postural symptoms, dizziness, lightheadedness, collapses, certainly with any sort of this history of liver disease, just be aware you might not see that blood yet. Mm. Be prepared to do a PR, look for melina. It may not present as sort of a hematemesis. And I think the, um, the San Francisco syncope rules mentions low hematocrit to reduce the hematocrit as part mm -hmm. of their criteria. I think because of that, an occult GI bleed, I mm -hmm. think is probably what they're thinking about in, when they came to that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, presentation, as we said, can be incredibly varied. Mm. You may get something as straightforward as a patient with liver disease who pretends, presents with sort of frank um, hematemesis, but it may not be as obvious as that. Mm. Um, your other clues are going to be in your vitals and your examination at that point. So, as I say, consider those shock features, consider abdominal pain, consider that PR. Um, the other thing, I mean, I know we're going to primarily be talking about your sort of acute upper GI bleeds and management of that, but you may get people presenting having had occult bleeds, so sort of slow chronic bleeds, mm. which they may not even have noticed. So this is just really to highlight that you might not always see that blood loss. You may get sort of that sort of malignant related occult blood loss in your, in your faeces which presents with an acute anemia and someone who may equally be sort of shocked and symptomatic from their anemia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you mentioned uh, portal hypertension there. Yeah. So um, obviously you know you, you can't see into a patient to see if they have uh, varices uh, just from the end of the bed. What, mm -hmm. what other features might there be from the end of the bed and on examination of, of portal hypertension? So I think, I mean, we're, we're going to go into the realms of chronic liver disease a little bit, but it's to be familiar with those stigmata. So mm. someone with portal hypertension will more or less have some ascites, so mm. examine for ascites. They may have evidence of varices elsewhere, so you may see rectal varices. Um, they may have the caput medusa, the sort of varices on the, um, sort of around the umbilicus on the ab abdominal wall. You may see spider nevi as well, Jupiter's contracture, palmar erythema. They may be encephalopathic, and certainly a liver patient who is decompensated will have some of these sort of stigmata of chronic disease mm. and that evidence of decompensation. Okay. So um, we've um, briefly mentioned about sort of, you know liver disease and alcohol mm. and, and um, drugs as a cause. What other causes are there of our patient presenting with I'm vomiting blood doctor yeah so going back to the history the etiology is going to identify what type of bleed it is really and almost highlight the urgency in, in your management um, so your liver patients may present with a variceal bleed i.e. they've got sort of these torturous dilated vessels in their esophagus very prone to tearing to bleeding and quite a catastrophic bleed even though it is a venous bleed um, they equally can have gastritis from sort of alcohol consumption. The other things to think about are your Mallory vice tears. So again, going back to your history, 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 history. Um, 
was the blood on the first vomit or has it happened after several episodes of violent vomiting yeah. and then they produced a bit of blood even in your liver patients you can get any number of these mm. um just to think about other causes i've mentioned malignancy more likely to present as a chronic anemia but you may get catastrophic bleeds certainly if there's been um a, an erosion into a vessel yeah. and i've, I've seen that as well sort of ulcers that have eroded into vessels and you can get your malignant ulcers obviously um don't forget ibd ibd is a medical condition so your inflammatory bowel diseases which may present with bloody diarrhea so i think it's it's easy enough to differentiate within the history if people have got either known history of ibd or um sort of inflammation of symptoms that frequency of going to the toilet and they're now passing bloody diarrhea you're going to think more ibd than worrying about upper gi bleed but just to be aware of blood coming from anywhere <laughs> in the gi tract really yeah absolutely it's it's a long tract yeah and that uh, we're gonna get graphic here that color and consistency of the blood will mm. sort of direct you towards the source as well so yeah. if you've got bright red blood pr you're thinking more hemorrhoids and something lower gi yeah but if you're passing that black sticky really quite sort of sweet smelling melina i think we're mm. all familiar with that mm. um well you say this I've, I've i've mentioned this to students have you ever smelled melina and, and it is actually i say it's probably a and e humor uh it is a key learning point as a student i think once smelt it's a bit like c diff once smelt never forgotten and and pseudomonas and <laughs> yeah those are those three uh but i can walk into a ward and go yeah, somebody's got Melina. Mm. It is a characteristic, yeah. sickly sweet yeah. sort of smell. And it is so characteristic as well. Yeah. Melina, upper GI bleed. Don't call your surgeons about Melina. Um, but it is the vomiting of bloody substances which becomes a little hard to differentiate. Yeah. Frank blood in your vomit, yes, you're going to think more variceal and certainly much higher. Um, but some blood will sit around in the, in the stomach that's what gets passed as melina and it is a gastric irritant as well so that's why you get multiple episodes of this sort of loose loose stool as well mm. but it may get digested before you vomit it again which is why we're kind of used to this dark coffee ground vomit in inverted yeah. commas but it's not a term really i would suggest using i really want to think is this blood is this the chocolate cake they had for lunch I yes, I was once called as, a, as an F1 urgently to, to assess yeah. a patient who had vomited brown and it had been their, uh, I just happened to look at their bowl that was in front of them and it was their pudding that yeah. was chocolate cake. And I was like, I think they've just vomited their chocolate cake. Again, oh, Jamie but... Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Absolutely, I wish I was Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I, I love Benedict. Um, yes, and um, I, I also knew a girl at the uni called Melina, which is an unfortunate name <laughs> when you're at medical school learning these names and uh, things yeah, like that. I think there's some drink in the International Isle at Sainsbury's called Melina as well. Oh dear, I would stay away from that. <laughs> Okay, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I think history, history, history. Um, I, from an A and E point of view as well, I'd, I'd point out that you know, um, I've seen patients presenting with a Mallory Weiss tear. Um, anyone with a prolonged uh, period of vomiting, also presenting with chest pain, any form of esophageal perforation, I mm. you know, would be worried about. Yes, it's very rare, but I have seen a few um cases and nearly been caught out oh he's just a bit of vomiting and, and actually mm -hmm. it was something else always to keep that in the back of the mind and also yes as you said it's um a blood is a potent um gastric irritator i assessed a gentleman for hematemesis 
um, but it was actually the vomit he'd swallowed from epistaxis. Yeah. And because he'd, he'd been swallowing it, swallowing it, swallowing it, mm. and his stomach was like, I don't like this anymore. Out it came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And you will get people who struggle to differentiate between whether or not they're coughing up bloody sputum or whether yeah. or not it's coughing that then causes them to vomit. Or So it does come down to history and really, really trying to nail down on those facts. Cool. So... Um, we're happy, our, well we're not happy, but we are content that our patient has uh, a hematemesis. What's our immediate management plan going to be then for our, for our patient who's an extremist? Say? Yeah, so first of all, go down your parallel assessment route. You're going to A, B, C, D, E that patient. Initially, obviously, we would think of airway problems, so is that airway patent? but also think about their risk of aspiration. Someone who is shocked, hypotensive, drowsy, vomiting, their risk of aspiration. So you want to be protecting that airway. Um, in terms of respiratory, again, make sure that oxygen's on. They're reducing their circulating volume, so they probably do need some oxygen. But I see people vomit into oxygen masks. That's not pleasant either. Um, shock is gonna be the most important thing in your emergency resuscitation based on a blood pressure and, and heart rate's important. Yeah. Um, Crystalloids are well and good, but you will dilute their circulating volume. So whilst you might use it as a holding measure to bring their blood pressure up a little bit, get those blood products as soon as possible. As I always say to my students, the oxygen carrying capacity of a crystalloid is still zero. Yes, absolutely. So you don't really want to make their uh, HB of six fall because the rest of the <laughs> yeah, saline. Reduce their hematocrit even more, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Along with that, think about reversing what you can. So yeah. even though obviously we can't do endoscopy in A&E yet, but reverse their anticoagulation. Give yeah. them some VIT-K, give them plasma, FFP, cryoprecipitate, octoplex, whatever it might be. Have that conversation with haematology and decide what's best. Your liver patients may have platelets of 10. They may have a PT of 40. So reversing that coagulopathy is a really important part of that sort of management um, there is some argument for tranexamic acid. I think jury's still out a little bit, um, but that idea of preventing the clot breakdown. Um, so emergency res resuscitation, really important. Um, there is slightly different management based on whether or not you think it's variceal or non-variceal bleed, um, which we'll go on to. Um, but in terms of your sort of initial diagnosis and management of this patient, Make sure you're getting your blood tests off as well. So you're going to do your full blood count, look at their HB. You may see that on a VBG as well. Do your UNEs. Your urea is really important here, and it's a good indicator of GI bleed. And as I say, coag screen is going to be a really important part as well. And that urea is all part of that protein meal, isn't it? Yes. You do your digesting yeah. so your blood. It's, a, it's quite a strong factor in predicting GI bleed and it's part of our risk stratification as well as if they've got mm. sort of disproportionately high urea compared mm. to their creatinine that idea they've yeah. got digested blood absolutely yeah gastroenterologists always want to know that yeah, urea with the creatinine are they in keeping or is there a much yeah. raise yeah shout out also to the research team at uh, dream who took part in the whole tip trial that was absolutely. looking at tranexamic yeah. acid i was hoping you were going to chime in with that one <laughs> i couldn't remember yeah but yes a lot of work done about tranexamic acid in the context of GI bleeds as well as major trauma um, so what's going to um, push us towards thinking um, about um, an urgent endoscopy versus one that could potentially wait a bit longer? Say we're out of hours, basically. Yeah, so, I mean, your resuscitation initially is always going to be sort of what it is. You're going mm. to be trying to resuscitate this patient with 
ideally blood products, stabilise them. What you want to do is reduce the risk of an in intervention with this patient as much as possible. Um, and if you can stabilise them to do an, an in-hours endoscopy in the endoscopy department, that's ideal. But for an unstable patient who has ongoing bleeding and is really said unstable, but hemodynamically unstable, you might be thinking more about your emergency out-of-hours endoscopy. And generally speaking, that will probably happen with anaesthetic support in theatres now. So yeah. again, it's an extremely high-risk procedure because you're now anaesthetising. You're giving a general anaesthetic to this patient who is already unstable, with an airway risk, who... With a low blood pressure. Low with, blood pressure, yeah. comorbid, whatever. So it's not without sort of consideration that you go for that, but there is that spectrum again of how you can address this. Mm. Um, so this is a question I've, I've a few of my students uh, uh, have asked me um, over the time whenever we discuss uh, GI bleed um, when to um, break out the the Blakemore tube the the sex taken mm. Blakemore tube uh, when do you when when do we well have you, have you ever seen it in A&E I haven't uh, in this A&E no um, somewhere else uh, I've only ever seen well I've only briefly seen one once when I was in F1 uh, mm -hmm. but um, I was quickly ushered out of the room anyway so I didn't yeah. get the learning in, uh, moment. Well if you put Jamie's and my experience together which is quite a bit now, um, neither of us have actually seen a Stengstark and Blakemore tube used so it is infrequent, it's in the extreme situations and it is for a viral bleed so for patients who have ongoing catastrophic bleeding and unstable it may be a holding measure. That's all it is. It's not a treatment. It's a holding measure, and you need to be prepared to um, go forth with intervention after you've done it. Generally speaking, this patient will be in intensive care as well. It essentially tamponades the vessels, so it goes all the way down into the stomach. You blow up that balloon and pull back, and it's an incredibly high pressure pull back, um, and it just tamponades those dilated, torturous vessels in a, in a way to prevent that bleeding. It's the equivalent of asking the patient to pinch their nose if they've got epistaxis basically yes. while, you, uh, while you ask ADNT to quickly rush down. A little more dramatic. A, a lot more dramatic, <laughs> yes. I think that's why I was ushered out of the room. Yeah. Um, so we've mentioned varices. Um, so there is obviously there is a distinction between is, a varicele yeah. and a non-varicele bleed. And we might know from our suspicion that our yeah. patient may be high risk of varices. They may have had an endoscopy before. Mm -hmm. We know they have varices. Yeah. Um, so, what is the distinction between a, the management of a variceal bleed versus a, a non-variceal mm. bleed? So, I mean... Both pre and during endoscopy. Yeah, so, so varices are something which are kept under surveillance. So, people, and we'll see, cirrhosis has many etiologies, so it's not just your alcoholics, it may be non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or um, autoimmune liver disease, nah. whatever it be many other things um, and they may have surveillance endoscopy so we may well know that they've got these torturous varices and they may have had prophylactic treatment in the past. Now when it comes to an acute presentation with a GI bleed, um, variceal bleeds it's important to get prophylactic antibiotics in um, so here I think we use tazacin. Yeah. Um, as long as they're not penicillinergic. As as um, and the other thing that's different is we give them telepressin um, and this basically reduces that portal venous pressure. So you're, again, trying to reduce that bleeding. Um, and again, it, it has proven reduction in mortality. Um, the other interesting thing is for a variceal bleed, we have a lower HB requirement. So 
we aim for an HB around 70, over 70, whereas for non-variceal bleed, you'd aim for an HB around 80 or above. So there is that distinction. We have more of a sort of um, permissive hypotension, permissive anemia in these patients, and that's really just to try and minimise the bleeding. Um, and obviously they tolerate a slightly lower HB as well. Mm -hmm. um, needless to say, I mean, gastro would certainly be involved with your variceal bleeds um, probably all the way through in the sense that these are more likely to be liver patients. Um, and post endoscopy, there's the possibility of a procedure called TIPS. So the idea of uh, a portosystemic shunt, basically, to reduce that portal pressure. Mm. Um, in terms of sort of so, sorry, so it's, yep. it's almost a little bit like um, management then of the surveillance of an aortic aneurysm, the idea of blood pressure control, yep. keeping an eye on it, yep. and, and things like that. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I interrupted you. Do you want to talk about endoscopy? Uh, yes, let's go on to endoscopy. Yes. So, um, so the, the management for a variceal bleed in endoscopy. So there is a difference between your uh, variceal and non-variceal bleeds in endoscopy. Obviously, this is something you would be. Uh, asking a, a senior gastroenterology colleague to be performing. This is never something that would be done by a junior staff member. But it's interesting to be aware of your possible therapies at endoscopy because whilst it's a diagnostic strategy and we use it very often for diagnosis, you actually can provide intervention and treatment during endoscopy for, for conditions such as this. So the things to be aware of is that you can band varices. So essentially putting an elastic band around the sort of torturous part of the varics and again, tamponading, blocking that sort of blood flow through that varix. As opposed to your non-variceal, where you may have a bleeding vessel in an ulcer, where we tend to use clipping. So sort of clipping onto those um, bleeding vessels instead. Again, there is a slight difference between using uh, sclerotherapy, which you'd use for varix, so the idea of uh, sclerosing that vessel, rather than adrenaline injection around uh, an ulcer base or a sort of bleeding ulcer. There is a difference there. Um, and the other thing which is a bit more available for ulcers than varices is going to be your diathermy. So the use of, sort of <laughs> hot stick basically to, to burn those vessels. Um, and as I say, there is a spectrum of when people will go to endoscopy um, and there are guidelines for timing as well. And that is that for unstable patients after appropriate resuscitation, they should essentially be going immediately for an endoscopy. Um, all other patients presenting with likely GI bleed is going to be within 24 hours, which basically means you can hold them until uh, you can do a daylight procedure. Okay. And um, the role of PPIs then in, in the So Yeah, so we use PPI therapy um, purely in the non-variceal bleeds. It doesn't have any role in variceal bleeds. Um, mm. And, I mean, again, the, uh, we tend to use a 72-hour infusion for a non-variceal bleed here. Um, that's post endoscopy, so you, you, you would load them with a meprazole IV beforehand, and then mm. they end up on a sort of three day treatment course of IV and meprazole, i.e., they're in hospital for a further three days post endoscopy. Um, but that it has no sort of role in, in a variceal bleed. So it's all about the etiology, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, if you, if you got in there and saw some gastritis, you may not need a full sort of 72 hours. Gastro may be a bit more sort of um, directive about what treatment they're suggesting. Um, the other thing, obviously, to consider is that H. pylori can cause ulcers as well. Mm. It's not just um, sort of NSAIDs and SSRIs and 
um, aspirin and things do think about H. pylori as a cause and they will do tests and essentially that patient may need eradication therapy if those tests from the endoscopy prove positive. It's a triple uh, triple therapy, therapy isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so high dose PPI and two antibiotics. Yeah. Shout out to the research team who gave themselves ulcers with H. pylori oh, to gosh. prove that point. That's commitment to research, that is. Uh, okay. Um, so, I mean, here in our A&E, we... Um, we do have a system for low-risk GI, okay. upper GI bleeds, uh, patients with upper GI bleed, to, to go home, to come back uh, for an endoscopy. We book the endoscopy uh, for the next day, uh, but they go home to come back rather than, than staying in if they are a low risk. And, and this is based on the, um, the Blatchford score of mm -hmm. risk stratification. Should we just have a bit of a talk about how we risk stratify our patients before and after endoscopy? Yeah. Um, so. The the primary one you'll come across um, is going to be the Glasgow Blatchford score, um, which should be used from first assessment, basically, of, of someone with um, an upper GI bleed. And that takes into account both your um, haemoglobin, and that is different for, for men and women. But the other thing we talked about is the urea, so mm -hmm. the idea of disproportionately high urea. Um, and you get sort of scoring, you score points based on the value of these. Um, the other sort of variable within that scoring system is your systolic blood pressure. So again, the idea that someone is shocked with an anemia and a high urea. Again, you can see this building the picture of a GI bleed. There are some other non-specific markers. It does have a tachycardia in there, um, other sort of melina, syncope. Um, but hepatic disease actually only carries two points, whereas you could get sort of six for a, a, a haemoglobin less than 100 in man. So... You can see the weighting is a little bit sort of mm. maybe not what you'd expect, but that's your first assessment. So that's the likelihood of them having an upper GI bleed and needing an endoscopy. Oh. So scores more than six um, are associated with a greater than 50% risk of needing an intervention. Okay. So less than six is, is possibly unlikely. There may be other causes. Mm. Um, but if you've got more than six, you're more than likely going to need an intervention. Is basically what it's saying. So it's, it's again, you need some clinical intuition and... Mm. The recommendation certainly if you're thinking about going down the endoscopy route you will be having that conversation with the gastroenterologist mm -hmm. um but keep those communications open open it's not just a case of okay they're probably having a gi bleed let's send them to d57 and leave them to it it's probably okay well their, their gbs score is 12 they've probably got yeah. a gi bleed they've got a systolic blood pressure of 101 <laughs> are we going to keep them here do they need to go to hdu do they need to go straight to endoscopy we're always going to have those conversations and yeah. again it goes back to that idea of knowing what you're asking when you're speaking to the relevant specialty when you're trying to escalate patients. I should point out to anyone who's ever been to the QMC that D57 is one of our acute oh. medical wards. Um, uh, but yeah, I, th I completely agree with that. I think, I, mean, I always say to my students, speak the, the language of, your, of the specialist you're speaking to. So if you can say to a gastroenterologist their Glasgow Bachelor score is whatever, it, it, yeah. you're, you're speaking their language. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly our low risk pathway here um, only works if you have a Glasgow Bachelor score of zero. Um, the okay. second you get anything, so you know, you, Melina just won, for example, you're staying in. Um, and then it, only then if you've got somebody at home to look after you and you're not elderly. So it's mm -hmm. a very uh, safety netted um, pathway that we agree with gastro. Okay, so that's the, uh, the first assessment risk stratification. What scoring systems we use after endoscopy? So the other scoring system you may come across and is probably used more by the gastroenterologist purely because we use it after the endoscopy procedure is the Rockall score. 
Um, and this is purely for an upper GI bleed and again has variables that you can get scored on. This actually includes things like age, so that's I mean, um, a non-modifiable uh, variable. It's very briefly talked about sort of shock, so the idea of uh, no shock, either tachycardia or the highest scoring is hypotension. Then talk about comorbidity, diagnosis, so actually what they've seen at endoscopy. So obviously if there's any diagnosis that's caused a GI bleed, you get one unless it's of malignant origin, in which case you get two. Um, Mallory Weister actually scores zero. Um, mm. And then they look for other stigmata of bleeding. And your post-OGD score basically just indicates your prognosis. So a score less than three gives a good prognosis and an early discharge. Greater than eight really has a high risk of death. So if you're old with sort of hypotension and comorbidities and actually you've had a proven sort of um, GI bleed from an ulcer, your prognosis is actually pretty bleak. And it also looks at re uh, your re-bleeding risk as yeah. well as your mortality, doesn't it? Yeah. So that, that's useful as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with your medical hat on, um, where do patients tend to go then after endoscopy? A lot of them, in fact, will go back to the wards. Um, it does depend, um, obviously, on their prognosis, risk, mm. that sort of thing. And that there is an element of sort of clinical subjectivity, if that doesn't sound too fluffy. Um, but we do get a lot of them on HDU. So we may get either people who need to come to HDU uh, pre-endoscopy for that sort of or let's keep them stable, close mm. management, close observation, they go to endoscopy and they either then go to the ward or they may come back to us. So there, there is a degree of variability again in where they go and um, uh, sort of what's appropriate. And again, you're always going to weigh up their comorbid status as to whether or not that endoscopy is even appropriate. So mm. The only other thing I was going to mention briefly was in terms of blood products. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, we're going back a little bit. Um, in terms of your emergency resuscitation, and again, trying to transfuse, so your sort of target transfusion levels in these patients. So that target transfusion of either HB70 or 80 is how you're going to get those blood products or your sort of clotting factors, other blood products if you need them. Mm. Um, I think we all know what a group and save is, where you can send off a, a sample of blood and, and they will cross, they will sort of um, get the blood type and the antibodies, but you don't get anything from it. Cross-match still takes sort of half an hour to an hour, I think, really, to get any blood to you, possibly even a bit more. Yeah. Um, but there are other ways of getting blood quicker if you're needing to emergency resuscitate these patients. And this isn't just available for A&E. You can get these on the wards as well. So either type-specific blood, if they've already had a group and save, or you get that sort of uh, blood type, or even requesting O-negative blood. And again, that can come straight to the ward if this is happening on the ward, not just A&E. Um, there is, uh, there will be sort of major hemorrhage protocols in all institutions. Um, I think a lot of them need consultant authorization or at least hematology discussion. Yeah. Um, so they are not to be taken lightly. Um, but in the context of a, a sort of hemodynamically unstable cirrhotic with a variceal bleed who's requiring a same staff and Blakemore tube, you may need those blood products and um, sort of uh, plasma and sort of clotting factors urgently. So. It is an option that's there should you need it. Yeah, and I think uh, just to go back right to the beginning is not to underestimate, and it is always better to cannulate the well patient with their nice veins before yeah. they deteriorate and you're struggling. So I think to students, you know, get that coag screen, 
get uh, the group and save and make sure they've got good access um, yeah. you will be thanked further down the line if the patient does go into extremism absolutely thank you very much Charlie thank you Jamie that was the Take Orally Upper GI Bleed podcast you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to, to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in any future episodes for information on education and research opportunities with emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.